Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week I've got three major financial headlines for you. First, it was a relatively quiet news week, but the stock market hit a new all-time high Friday for the second week in a row, as tech stocks rallied with the softening of midterm interest rates. Two, the tech rally was fueled by interest rate softening just a smidge, but it was also enough to drop mortgage rates for the first time in two months. And finally, Friday we got the March Producer Price Index, which shows prices for final demand goods and services are up significantly. What does that mean for inflation concerns? After that, we'll take a deep dive into what drives the stock market. As the stock market continues to reach new heights week after week in the face of inflation concerns and a predicted but not yet materialized economic recovery, many of you have asked if this is a market bubble and if and when we are headed for a market crash. I'll take a walk through some stock market history and the five major factors that drive the stock market to help explain where the market is today and where it may be going. Now let's talk about the three biggest financial headlines of the week. Up first, last week's financial markets performance. Last week, with minimal financial news, interest rates fell slightly and the market rallied as recovery hopes outweighed inflation concerns. The S&P 500 closed at a new all-time high Friday for the second week in a row, despite higher jobless claims and rising virus cases in what some experts are warning could be a fourth wave. The market finished the week up 2.7% its second-best weekly performance for the year. The S&P 500 is now up 9.9% year-to-date. Last week, as midterm interest rates softened, the market rallied led by tech and growth stocks. The NASDAQ was up 3.9% and growth stocks up 4% after underperforming with rising interest rates for most of the year. That brings me to interest rates. Since the start of 2021, interest rates have mostly gone in one direction, up, fueled by inflation concerns and prediction of the U.S. government issuing more national debt to support stimulus and the recently proposed American Jobs and Family Plans. Year-to-date, 10-year Treasury rates are up more than 80% and 30-year rates up more than 40% just since the start of the year. But last week, while long-term rates held relatively constant, Midterm rates paused their increases and even dropped a little, with 10-year Treasury rates falling 5 basis points. That momentary pause was enough to drop mortgage rates too, which also fell 5 basis points to 3.13% nationwide, their first decline in two months. So if you're in the market for a mortgage this spring, I'd encourage you to lock your rate sooner rather than later, because I don't foresee this pause in rate increases lasting long. Why? Inflation expectations are still as high as ever, with tip spreads to treasuries still predicting over 2% inflation in the coming quarter, 
and rates will rise as the economy recovers and inflation continues to increase. This brings me to last week's economic data on inflation, the producer price index for March. We've been tracking two consumer-based indices for inflation, the CPI and the PCE price index closely over the last several months as concerns about higher inflation have increased. Both of those track the prices paid by consumers. The producer price index is a group of indices that tracks the change in selling prices at various stages of production from, as the name implies, the producer's perspective. Some of these PPIs, especially those associated with specific commodities, have data going back to 1913. The PPI for final demand represents the price of finished goods and services sold to consumers as well as businesses and governments. It's a broader price gauge of all final demand across the economy. This series only dates back to 2009, but for March, it had its biggest year-over-year increase since after 9-11, up 4.2% since last March. Much of the increase in prices in the current month is attributable to rising energy prices, but bottom line, all inflation indicators continue to point to rising prices, and now we've got actual indices showing that prices are increasing. This week, we will get another data point for inflation, the CPI, which comes out on Tuesday. This week's podcast is also brought to you by the Family Finance Moms Book Club. If you want to increase your financial literacy even more, come read with us. It's super simple to join in. Every quarter, we read a book. To participate, all you have to do is read with us and join in the conversation by following me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom. Follow the hashtag FFM Book Club to catch all the related book club posts and join in the discussion in the comments. For Q2, we are actually reading a pair of contrasting books on economic theory. Big Debt Crises by Ray Dalio, which studies economic cycles of the last 1,500 years, and The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, which poses a new economic theory, modern monetary theory, which says that deficit and the national debt may not really matter anymore. We'll compare and contrast them as when we discuss them in June. Now for this week's deep dive, what drives the stock market? One of the questions I get asked more than any other is why is the stock market behaving the way it is, especially over this last year? The last year has shown to be one of the wildest rides I've ever seen in the market in my lifetime, but its behavior through the pandemic can be explained. If you can understand what drives the market, you can explain its behavior from day to day and year to year based on just a handful of factors. Every day, news comes out that impacts individual stocks and the market as a whole. You can make yourself crazy trying to keep up with its daily whims. But if you take a step back and look at the bigger picture over a longer-term time horizon, you can better understand investment risk and what really drives the market's performance. I'm going to break down the stock market's major drivers into two primary groups, fundamental drivers, which drive long-term market performance, and other technical drivers, which can have short-term impacts. Most investors invest based on fundamental drivers, 
and look at the market movement created by other technical drivers as moments that can create buying opportunities. Let's start with the fundamental drivers and take a little walk through some stock market history while we do it. The stock market is supposed to be driven by expectations of future corporate earnings. A company's share price is supposed to be representative of the future cash flows of the business, discounted back to present value by a discount rate, which is influenced by market interest rates and other investment alternatives. This analysis is thus impacted by a number of fundamental inputs, including company earnings, a company's growth rate, and interest rates. Robert Schiller is a Nobel Prize-winning expert in economics and behavioral finance and a Yale economics professor. His Nobel Prize was for his methods of evaluating asset prices, and he has researched all types of asset valuations, from stocks to the housing market. He published much of his research in a book, Irrational Exuberance, that originally was published in 2000. It accurately predicted the tech market bubble. His second edition, published in 2005, accurately predicted the housing market bubble too. He shares all his research data on stock market valuation dating back all the way to 1871 on his Yale homepage. I use this data to look at some correlations to the overall market over time to see what drivers are most correlated with stock market performance. If we look at the data going all the way back to 1871, corporate earnings are the most correlated driver with stock market performance. This is closely followed by Schiller's cycle-adjusted P-E ratio, which instead of just looking at current earnings, which can be impacted by recessions, looks at real earnings over the 10 years prior to normalize for economic cycles. Over 150 years of market data, as corporate earnings rose and fell, so did the stock market 90% of the time. But when you look at the data, especially the P-E ratios, there's a definite sustained step-up over the last 30 years. Pre-1990, for 120 years, the average cyclically adjusted P-E ratio was 14.4 times earnings. Post-1990, for the last 30 years, it's averaged 26 times earnings. So what explains this increase? The market is constantly changing, and if we look at the more recent, and in particular the modern, more tech-dominant market, correlation with earnings has fallen from 90% to 77%, and other factors now have greater impact, specifically interest rates, which are now four times more correlated with market performance. Interest rates are negatively correlated with the stock market, meaning they move in opposite directions. When interest rates fall, the market rises, and when rates rise, the market tends to fall. Over the last three decades, the stock market has shifted from one fairly balanced across a range of industries to one increasingly dominated by large, high-growth tech companies. Back in 1989, tech accounted for just 6% of the weight of the S&P 500. In the 1990s, that weight soared leading up to the tech bubble, reaching a bull market high in March of 2000 of 34.5%, more than one-third of the entire market. It contracted after the tech bubble burst, but has since ballooned again over the last 20 years. 
At the end of 2020, tech again accounts for well over a third of the S&P 500. This shift helps explain to a degree why average market valuation ratios, like the market P.E. ratio, are so much higher today than historically, 1.8 times as high over the last 30 years than in the prior 120 years. But this also makes the market more sensitive to interest rates. Tech, which now represents a third of the S&P 500, the most commonly cited index for overall market performance, carries much higher P.E. ratios, and valuation ratios are more sensitive to interest rates. A valuation ratio is simply a comparison between a company's market value, like their share price, to a fundamental financial measure like earnings. The P.E. ratio is the most commonly cited valuation ratio. In simple terms, the P.E. ratio compares a company's current share price to its earnings per share. It can be a backward-looking ratio looking at the reported earnings over the last 12 months, or a forward-looking one comparing current share prices to analyst estimates of earnings for the coming year. But the P.E. ratio, and all valuation metrics really, are actually just a shortcut to a more detailed fundamental financial analysis, specifically discounted cash flows. As an investment analyst, you're trained to analyze financial statements, forecast future company growth, earnings, and cash flows, and then discount them back to present value. You can then compare that value to current share prices and decide if a stock is over or undervalued. A P.E. ratio effectively does this in a single multiple, using earnings as a proxy for cash flows. The formula ultimately simplifies to the P.E. ratio being equal to 1 over the discount rate minus the growth rate, or 1 over R minus G. The higher interest rates are, the higher the discount rate is, and the lower P.E. ratios will be. Similarly, the higher growth rate a company has, the more it reduces that denominator, and the higher the P.E. ratio will be. This is why tech stocks have higher valuation multiples, because they are higher growth. Here's an example. If I expect a 20% return on my equity investments and I invest in a company growing earnings at 15% per year, its P.E. ratio should be 1 divided by 20 minus 15% or 20 times earnings. If the stock is currently trading at 25 times earnings, it's overvalued and not a good investment at the current price. If it's currently trading at 15 times earnings, it's undervalued and a good investment at the current price. High growth, high PE ratio tech stocks now represent a disproportionate share of the stock market. So as interest rates rise and fall, High P.E. ratios are more sensitive to these changes, and thus, so are tech company stocks and the market. Fundamental drivers are supposed to be what drives the stock market performance, but as with all markets, there are elements of human behavior and competing forces for investors' capital that play a role as well. Technical factors can often cause short-term impacts that may deviate from long-term, fundamentally-driven trends. One of these is momentum. Momentum traders seek to profit off the herd mentality of human behavior. The general thought is that a stock price on the rise will continue to rise. Sometimes momentum traders also short falling stocks. 
Momentum investors study stock price charts and moving averages. They look at relative strength, which stocks are outperforming their broader indices, to see what stocks might be overbought or oversold, and then they assume that the trend will continue. If a fundamental investor is looking to buy low and sell high, momentum investors look to buy high and sell higher. A good recent example of a momentum trade is the performance of GameStop at the start of 2021. There is no solid fundamental reason for the stock to have gone from $4 to $400 in the course of just a few months. And when the stock price started to fall, there was a rush for the exits. Definitely a momentum trade. Another technical factor is liquidity. Liquidity is essentially how easily something can be traded in and out of in order to convert it back to cash quickly. Liquidity can impact the market as a whole, as well as individual stocks. Smaller stocks with fewer shares outstanding or stocks that are closely held, meaning a significant percentage of the stock is owned by just a few shareholders, can sometimes be negatively impacted or traded a discount to their fundamentals due to lack of liquidity. In the financial crisis of 2008, a liquidity crisis negatively impacted the market as a whole. With losses mounting in the financial sector due to spillovers from bad mortgages and even worse derivative bets on bad mortgages, investors looked to generate cash wherever they could, including by selling off very liquid stocks. While much of the negative fundamentals were isolated to the housing and financial sectors, the lack of liquidity caused negative impacts across the stock market and other investment markets too. Some argue that the multiple rounds of stimulus checks and significant increase in the money supply over the last year has created excess liquidity in the current market. It's driving higher inflation concerns as well as fueling excess stock market demand driving up the stock market price, and detaching market performance from actual fundamentals. Now that you have a better sense of what drives the stock market historically, let's examine what's driving the current market. Every week I get asked if there's a bubble or if the market is going to crash soon. The current market continues to be driven by two competing forces. First, hopes of economic and a corporate earnings recovery, tempered by rising interest rates fueling fueled by inflation concerns. And currently, historically low interest rates have driven valuation ratios near record highs. Current PE ratios, even on a cyclically adjusted basis, are 37 times earnings. The only period when cyclically adjusted PE ratios surpassed these levels was in the late 1990s, pre-tech bubble burst. They peaked at 44 times earnings in December of 1999. This is what's fueling some of those bubble concerns. But it should be noted that interest rates today are also far lower than they were in the late 1990s. Currently, just 1.67% for U.S. 10-year Treasury yields versus over 6% in the late 1990s, which some may argue makes the higher ratio today more justifiable. Rising interest rates have a greater effect on the market today than they did historically as they reduce valuation ratios, especially for high multiple tech stocks. Note how tech stocks have underperformed year-to-date as interest rates have increased. Over the last year, the stock market as a whole rallied from its pandemic low 
on the expectation that corporate earnings would recover, that the impact of the recession would be temporary. Starting this week, we now enter Q1 2021 earnings season, and many investors will expect to see signs of recovery in earnings, as well as in the outlook shared by executives as they report their earnings. If interest rates rise, lowering valuation ratios as actual earnings materialize in the economic recovery, we may not see a major market correction. Though many do expect below average market growth for the coming years, given current market levels. However, if we don't hear positive signs of recovery and solid earnings growth expectations from corporate executives over the next two to three weeks of the Q1 earnings season, the market could definitely be in for a bit of a bumpy ride. Have a question about the economy or financial markets you'd like to hear covered on Finance Explained? Leave me a voice message. Just click the link in the show notes to record a message with your question or topic of interest, and I just might feature you on our next episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to catch each weekly episode of Finance Explained. I'd also love and appreciate your reviews. They are really critical for new podcasts especially. Thanks so much for your support. That's it for this week's market update. If you want some visuals to go with all these market factors and history, check out the link in the show notes. Coming up this week, after a relatively quiet few weeks since the end of March, it's a big week for economic data as well as the start of earnings season. Just over 100 companies are scheduled to report Q1 2021 earnings this week, including most of the major banks, and more than 300 companies are scheduled for next week. Some major earnings releases to watch. Wednesday, we have J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Bed Bath & Beyond. Thursday, look for Bank of America, PepsiCo, and Delta Airlines to report. On the economic front, we also have lots of data coming this week. Tuesday, the Consumer Price Index for March gets released. And Thursday, in addition to the normal weekly jobless claims, mortgage rates, and Fed balance sheet data, we also get advanced retail sales for March. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures. <music>